saving for a rainy day, but it's not even wet. Then there's food, some gas, and clothes. Don't forget the rent. Insurance pops up here and there. And don't forget to cut your hair. You need new shoes, but you got the blues because you just ran out of cash. Welcome to Sensible Chat, the podcast committed to helping you learn positive money mindsets, destroy debt, reduce financial stress, and break the paycheck-to-paycheck cycle. Our guest professor today is Danny Kofke, author of Can I Borrow $400? He's going to share strategies to win the game of financial freedom. After class, Sensible Bobby will outline a budgeter's guide to serenity. But first, she's going to give you some great ideas for budgeting your stimulus money. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get to the sensei of savings, the debt destroyer, the superstar of smart spending. Here is Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. Happy New Year. And thank you for joining me for another episode of Sensible Chat. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the fact that no sooner did we finish the last episode than our, quote, leaders finally passed a stimulus bill. Most of the programs I talked about a couple weeks ago that were scheduled to end on December 31st were extended into the new year. That's great news for those who are struggling. But I'm not sorry we spent time on the subject, because those programs will end eventually, and we need to be ready to weather the storm whenever it hits. For some, this extension means they'll continue to get an additional $300 on top of their unemployment. And if you're one of those who are actually making more now than when you were working, thank your lucky stars and save that money. First of all, it won't last forever, so don't get used to living on it. Second, if you're not experiencing a financial hardship now, your time will come. It's almost an inevitable part of life. Stuff happens. So if you don't need the money now, put it away so you have it when you do need it. I promise you won't regret it. Same goes for the stimulus check you may have gotten already or is on the way. Have you given any thought to what you'll use it for? Please, I implore you, give it some thought, preferably before it hits your bank account. We just came through a tough year. I know it would be easy to blow it on something you want in the moment and bring some short-term joy after such a stressful time. But if you don't have a safety net, that stress will keep coming back. So really think about where that money could benefit you most in the long run. And here's what I love about categorizing your money. You can earmark it for several different things or put it all in one place. I've changed the way I categorize money several times over the past few years as my views and priorities have changed. None of it has been wrong, but it's been really eye-opening and exciting to realize how many different ways there are to categorize your money. For example, you might decide to budget your entire stimulus check into one category. Maybe it's your emergency fund. Early on, this was too general for me because it was too easy to justify an emergency that really wasn't. Instead, I might have put it all into a car maintenance fund because I've had a lot of car issues in my life, so this is always a biggie for me. And I can't justify spending that money on anything but car maintenance. But my other big concern was having three to six months worth of expenses in case I lost my job. When you look at how much you need for that, it can be really overwhelming. So instead of having one fund, I started saving a month ahead for one bill at a time. It was less daunting and I had small wins much faster than if I was trying to save the entire amount all at once. 
kind of like the debt snowball method for savings. But things have changed a bit. Now I focus on getting ahead on all my annual or otherwise irregular expenses first. This gives me more peace of mind because I'm not scrambling to find money when these things come up. And once that's done, there's even more money to save toward my three to six months worth of expenses, so I feel more confident about saving toward a bigger goal. However you decide to categorize your money, it doesn't change the total amount you have to work with. So try looking at it from different angles and see what works best for you. And know that if you have a car maintenance fund and no job loss fund, you can still use your car maintenance fund to pay the bills if you lose your job. The point is to think about your priorities and give every dollar a job so you don't end up spending it mindlessly and then regretting it because you don't have enough for what you really need. So while you're waiting for your stimulus check, review your budget and take time to think through your options for how that money can benefit you the most. With 2020 finally behind us, I wonder how many people made New Year's resolutions and how many of those are still on track. Most of them go out the window pretty quick. My theory? People spend more time deciding what their resolution will be than actually creating a plan to follow through. Why? Because they don't know their why. (laughs) Now, if you're confused, keep listening because our guest is going to explain why your why is so important. Okay, class, stop the chatter and get ready for what matters. Sensible University is now in session. Today's guest professor is Danny Kofke, author of Can I Borrow $400? Danny's everyday approach to handling money has led to appearances on numerous television shows, including Fox and Friends, CNN's Newsroom, and The Clark Howard Show. He's also been interviewed on over 600 radio shows and featured in a number of publications, including USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and Money Magazine. Despite living on Danny's $42,000 yearly teaching salary for eight years, his family of four are on track to pay off their final debt, the mortgage, this year. Have a one-year emergency fund in place, will retire with a sizable nest egg, and most importantly, live wealthy lives on less. Danny, thank you so much for being our guest professor today. Hey, Bobby, thank you so much for having me on. Tell me why you chose to title your book, Can I Borrow $400? Well, it's interesting. So um, I guess it was two years ago, my wife had to go in. She just had a little spot on her forehead and went to the dermatologist. And we have decent health insurance. She's a teacher, so we're under her policy. And even though we have you know that in place, up front, she had to pay $750. And that kind of got me thinking. I thought, gosh, how many people wouldn't be able to cover that? Just all of a sudden, a sudden, hey, you need 750 bucks to pay for this. And then I did a little research and it was done by the Federal Reserve Board that only 60% of Americans could cover a $400 emergency. So that's kind of, you know, the, the catchy little title, can I borrow $400? Because that's the thing where we're right now we look at it and this was pre-pandemic. So those numbers, unfortunately, have probably gone up. But, you know, only six out of 10 people could cover a $400 unexpected expense. And let's face it, $400, I mean, that, that type of expense can happen pretty easily. I actually, I was just yesterday, went to get an oil change and I knew my wife's car needed some new tires. Wasn't sure when, but apparently the tread is kind of getting low. So here we go, I'm going in uh, Monday morning and getting four new tires and that's gonna be like $700. So it's just those types of things that, 
you know, a lot of people just are not prepared and life happens. And, and that's kind of, you know, why I premised the book with that. Yeah, that's what caught my eye, that title, because you're right. There's so many of those things that happen that go way over $400. So let's talk about how to determine what to focus on and what to let go of in times like this when you have very little money to work with. Sure. And I think this is where it can be tough because a lot of times, and not as much anymore because there's been some laws passed, but the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So a lot of times we tend to pay people that bother us. So if we're having a crisis, you have credit card companies calling you, bugging you, collection agencies, hey, we need to pay. Those are the least, you know, the bottom of the list of what you should be focused on. If times are tough and, you know, you got to pick who gets paid, we go back to what we learned in first grade, the wants versus needs. And we go with the stuff that we need. Things such as our housing, our utilities, food, if we need a car to get to a job, transportation, and especially now um, like health insurance, those types of things should take precedent over those debts, you know, our car payment, our credit card bills, those types of things. We don't have to pay those every month to survive, right? But, you know, we have to eat, we have to have shelter. So we just kind of take a look and go back to those things. And that's what we focus on. And like I said, sometimes those other people kind of bark the loudest. So we tend to pay more attention to them. But actually, the reason they bark so loud is because they know they have to in order to get us to part with our money, because we should be applying it to those other things that are actually things that we need to survive. Right. And I think that a lot of times, you know, these things happen because we're just kind of out of focus of where our priorities should be on a day-to-day basis, right? I mean, when you're in a financial crisis, of course, you know, yeah, you're right. The credit card should come last because you got to eat. But sometimes you don't have money to eat because you weren't really paying enough attention to the choices you made before that. And there was a great quote in your book that says, every financial action has a financial consequence. The lack of thinking about the consequences is what gets so many into financial trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think this can really be illustrated by the story in your book about the couple who were just starting off their lives together, who made a few spending decisions without really thinking it through. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, basically, I mean, unfortunately, too, it's, it's a, a fictional story, but for many, it's actually factual. But basically how they started off in life, you know, met and then got married. But basically along the way, they lived in a way that unfortunately far too many of us do. So they both had the average student loan debt, which is about $37,000 after you graduate. So you're already starting off with that. They had an expensive honeymoon that all went on a credit card. Their wedding, parents helped a little bit, but they had to pay for most of it. Engagement ring, same thing, went to the mall, put it on a jewelry store credit card. So when everything, you know, it seemed like, okay, we're starting our lives in the right way because we go by what the media tells us. We go by, especially right now, what commercials are showing, those types of things to get us to part with our money. So they made all these decisions because, you know, that's what we do. That's the way it's supposed to go. But then shortly after getting married, the bills started coming in. And at that point, they realized all this debt is going to prevent us from possibly being able to buy a house or putting down a large down payment from having children, being able to afford having children. So it was kind of, like I said, a hypothetical story, but unfortunately a lot of people, young adults have followed that path. And then once we get behind the eight ball with debt, it is so difficult to get out. So when we start our lives off behind, 
It just, we have to play the rest of our time working. We're playing catch up. And that's kind of where, you know, just wanted to illustrate. And the beauty is I try to tell people too, after the story, it is kind of a depressing thing, but there is a way out. We're allowed to make mistakes in lives and we learn from them and then we move forward and do better. But it's so much easier if we start off on the right solid foundation, a financial foundation, especially so we don't have to work already behind when we start our lives. Right. I mean, you know, like you said, this is a fictional story, but one that has happened to a lot of people. And I would be willing to bet that the majority of those people regret those decisions. I mean, you know, yes, they may have had a wedding that they can look back on that was glorious. All their friends were there. They had a good time. But was it worth all the stress that came with it and, you know, the wedding ring and all those things that they just didn't think about how much that was going to affect their lives going forward. But on the other hand, you and your wife actually did think about those things ahead of time. You knew that you wanted to have your wife be a stay-at-home mom, and you guys were both teachers. I'll let you tell the rest of that story, but how did you start the process of thinking ahead for how you knew you wanted your life to be? Yeah, so when Tracy and I got married, we were both first grade elementary school teachers, so making about $40,000 a year. So we kind of had a goal in place that one day when we eventually had a child or children, we wanted Tracy to be able to stay at home. And in saying that, we knew then we had to live on less and we had to start off our married lives and, and do decisions because let's face it, 40 grand a year is not a lot of money. So if we had a huge mortgage payment, we had car debt, we had credit cards, it would be impossible. There's just not enough money to pay for all those things. So we started off just by trying to plan ahead and think, okay, four years down the road, five years down the road, when we eventually have children, we want to be able to be in the position that we're able to do those things that we, we envision doing. So we started off our lives. We had one car. We actually taught overseas for two years after getting married. And then when we moved home, we had one car for the first two years until our oldest daughter was born. There were some days my school was about two miles away that I would ride my bike to school. I was the only teacher parking at the bike rack, right? <laughs> right. But I knew we had to pay off that car and we only had one car payment at that time and we were accelerating it to get rid of it. So I can happily say two years after we bought it, it was paid off in full. Our starter home was a smaller two bedroom house. So we just kind of had our eyes on the future of, okay, we know this is what our income is going to be. These are some of our goals of what we want. So we're going to have to make it work. And I think for a lot of people, that's the biggest part is there's a lack of planning. It would have been very easy to live off of both of our salaries and just get used to that income. But we had a plan in place and we had goals. And I think that's so huge for a lot of people that they don't think about the future. And we're just kind of thinking about the here and now. So we kind of projected it out so we can make what our dreams were become a reality. Yeah, I think that's the difference between a goal and a daydream, right? Because if you just have the daydream, you know what you want your life to look like, but you don't take the time to think about what it will take to get there and actually implement those things. So I'm sure that there were sacrifices you had to make. I mean, one of them was riding your bike to school, right? So tell me about some of the other sacrifices and challenges that you had to get to the other side where you are now. You know, it's interesting. I, You know, looking back now, I don't even, yes, we did sacrifice, but I think because we were working together as a couple and we were working towards something that we both felt strongly about, it really wasn't that big of a sacrifice. I mean, I guess for some, they'd be like, oh my Lord, and people have said, how did you do that? I couldn't do that. But I think because we had that ultimate goal in place, 
it made it easier. I mean, even when Tracy, so she stayed home for eight years and we lived on my salary, teacher's salary at that point, I was a teacher still. So sometimes our date night was a Redbox movie and a Subway sub. I mean, it is what it is. And it's interesting. Now I look back. So now my daughters are 16 and 13 and I've transitioned to another career and Tracy is back teaching full time. So from that time that we were making about 42 grand a year, raising a family, we have probably tripled our income, but yet, and it's interesting, I don't know if we're happier per se. It's like, you know, we do have more stuff. We have a bigger house now. We have nicer toys. And I knew that money doesn't buy happiness and we have less worries because we have more income. But, you know, those times that we did have a date night of a Subway sub, we enjoyed those. There was just a sense of, I think our lives were they were a little less busy and we just had, I guess, more time. So I think, you know, I'm happy with where we're at right now and it is part of life's transitions. But I think a lot of times, I think some people, they just get all this money and they're, they're working towards this thing and they're buying this stuff to try to think, okay, I'm going to be happier. I'm going to be happier. And they're not, it doesn't do that. It just takes it away sometimes. And it actually leads to more stress. Yeah. And I I think that kind of goes along. Another thing that I read in your book that I thought was very powerful, when you know your why, you can endure anyhow. And I think that's what happened with you guys. Is it not? Absolutely. We knew our why and our why, you know, obviously, you know, Tracy being a stay at home mom, you make nothing. We were taking a pay cut from her not being a teacher anymore. And then being a teacher, I didn't, I can't complain. I mean, it was an okay salary, but most would admit teachers are more of a moderate income level salary. So yes, but we had that big why in place. We're like, okay, we want to be able to have Tracy stay at home as long as possible. We didn't really know at first how long that was going to be. We didn't know at first how many children we were going to have. But, you know, just because we kept working the plan and every year it's like, okay, you know what? We're fine comfortably. We're doing well financially. You can stay home you know, another year. So I think our big why, though, was we knew if Tracy was working full time because teaching, I mean, it's a hard job. It's difficult when you have 24 and at that time, a first grade teacher, 24, six year olds, you would come home and not have much patience for her own, her own children, because it's just so stressing. So we just knew what was best for our family. And I think that's the biggest key kind of to our success. And I think for many people that do well financially, it's personal finance. So it's personal. What is best for you? I don't care what's best for my neighbor. I don't care what's best for my brother, what's best for their family and what they're doing. I worry about what's best for me and my family. And those are the decisions that we made to impact what we thought was best for us. Another good point on that front is the story that you told in the book about your daughter, Ava. And I thought this was so important and can be so inspirational for parents because she actually asked you at one point if you could move to a bigger home. Tell me about that story and what your answer was. Yeah, sure. So at this time, Ava was in kindergarten. So Ella was born as well. So probably in the middle of the eight years of of Tracy staying at home. So once again, at that time, I'm teaching special education, making about 42,000 a year. So our home, I mean, just the uh, typical middle class home, nothing fancy and special. But once Ava got in kindergarten, exposure to some other kids and how they live. So I'll, I'll never forget, I came home one day and she's like, Dad, can we move into like a bigger house? Some of my friends, they have more stuff, bigger rooms, more toys. I'm like, 
Well, yeah, we can. I said, but, you know, some things are going to have to change. You know, first off, you like being at the same school where I am. I drive you to school every morning. You ride home with me and you get to see me throughout the day. I said, so that's going to change. I'll have to go get a different job to make a little more money to pay for the house. Said, uh, you know, you also like being home. You get to come home after school and your mom's here and, you know, you get to play. I said, well, that's going to change too because your mom's going to have to go back to work. And then you're going to go to the after school program. So you'll have a bigger room and you'll have more stuff to play with, but you won't have as much time to do it because you're going to be at school probably till six o'clock at night till we can pick you up after our jobs. So you'll come home, you'll be able to play for an hour or so, and then you have to go to bed. So yes, we can do that for sure. But you know, I don't know if that's the best thing. And she's like, you know, dad, I think we got it pretty good. So, you know, and that's the thing. She was five, I think, yeah, five years old at the time. And, you know, I think that's kind of what we try to do with both of our daughters growing up is like a lot of people make money issues very taboo and they don't discuss them. And we were very open and honest with them and explain, you know, we have made certain decisions because this is what we feel is best for our family. So saying that we may not drive as nice of a car, we may not have as big of a house, but we're doing what we think is right for us. So it's just one of those that, I mean, whether it's right or wrong, and I'm sure there were times they disagreed with the way that we decided to do it, but we just, Tracy and I felt strongly about that. So I think that's the thing too, where parents can take away is that we can be honest and open. And obviously if you're facing you know financial distress and things are really tough, you may not want to go into great detail, but I think a lot of times kids love it when their parents even mess up. So if you've made a money mistake, explain it. It shows that you're human and it's okay to make a mistake. But the important thing is that we learn from those mistakes and we don't allow them to happen again. And that's kind of for any area of life, but especially when it comes to our finances. Sure. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, kids aren't stupid. They get it. You know, your daughter got it right away. And I think those are really important lessons for kids. And if they get those young, it can really benefit their lives going forward and, you know, help out with the parents too. Cause then you don't have your kids, you know, begging for everything all the time because they know there's a greater good. They're into it too. There's a common goal. Now, in the book, you cited the statistic that 70% of workers are unhappy in their jobs. And it seems like a vicious cycle. You know, we hate our job, but we're so far in debt that we can't make a change. But we're in debt because we're trying to fill the void left largely by a job we hate. So Mm -hmm. how do we get off this merry-go-round? Yeah, that's where I think, once again, we have to go back to our why. And then we also have to go, okay, what is best for us as a family or as a single unit? Like, instead of living our lives for someone else, because I think about that stat sometimes. And right now, I'm not driving into work. I'm kind of getting to work from home at this point in time, obviously, because of the pandemic, along with many others. But, you know, when I was driving to work, I would think about that statistic. And seven out of 10 people that I was passing on the road were driving somewhere that they didn't want to be sitting in traffic to get there. And it's just this like a hamster in a wheel, just not making any progress at all. So is it any wonder that our country, I look at are so angry. It just seems like, and I know the media sometimes makes us seem more different than, than we really are. But I do think about that. Like if we're dissatisfied where we spend the majority of our time, especially during the week, 
gosh, any wonder that we, we were angry at the little things, it seems like. So I think that's where we just have to go back to step one and, and knowing our why. What are we going to use our money for? What is the purpose of it? And then make a plan. If you dislike your job, well, make a plan to one day be able to get out of it. Because that's the beauty is if we have a plan in place and we're making progress, it's easy to keep going, but if we're just going in every single day, oh, another day, another day, and there's no plan in place to eventually do better, then that's when we just give up, and that makes it a lot worse. Definitely. I think the most important thing is that if you can realize that you are not a victim, but you are actually in control of your choices and can make these differences, then there's hope. And then you can go forward and make the plan and do the things that need to be done. But that feeling has to come first that you have the power within you to make those changes. Definitely. And, you know, we just came off a a presidential election and it's just so interesting to me that so many people put so much into the election and all their energy. And for me, yes, I know a president, I'm not saying a president doesn't matter, but really my day-to-day life isn't going to change no matter who the president is. It's not going to make that big of a difference. And so many people just place all their hopes and everything on someone. You're in charge of your own personal success, I feel like. And yes, there can be some policies that can help at that, but If you don't do something on your own and make that change, it really, to me, doesn't matter who's in office. You're still going to be in the same position if you don't make any growth and change. Yeah. And in that vein, you created the game of financial freedom. So what are some of the rules of that game and why are they important? Sure. And I just kind of used it kind of like a video game where we just kind of progress from stage to stage and just starting off. It's basically the first thing I think when it comes to our finances is you have to know your why. And we've talked about that in that show setting goals as well. So know why you're working. What do you want your money to do for you and set some goals from that? And then we start off, I just kind of have different levels, but basically at first is just have the protection in place. You want to make sure you're properly insured with life insurance and obviously car insurance and health insurance and disability insurance. A lot of people overlook that one, but some of us are going to become injured at work. So you need to have that paycheck protection. Also getting a will, a little estate planning, especially if you have kids, if you have a family, we need to have that in place. Then we kind of get into the financial part of it, I guess, if you want to say, and we start off by saving one month worth of expenses. And that way that's in a savings account. I don't, not trying to earn a bunch of interest on it. We just want it there in case of an emergency. For instance, Monday, I'm going to get new tires. Guess what? I have the money in a savings account to pay for these new tires. And a lot of people, we talked about it before with not having $400, people will say, oh, you know, I just have the worst of luck. Let's face it. Yes, there's sometimes you do have bad luck, but if you live in a house long enough, you're going to need a new roof. (laughs) If you drive a car long enough, you're going to need new brakes. If you have kids, they're going to break something, whether it's a body part or something in your body. It's not bad luck. It's called life. So we have to prepare for that. And then I kind of disadvance, like after you save a month of expenses, then we start investing $100 a month for retirement. Or if you're fortunate enough to work for a company that has a match with a 401k, you want to invest enough to get that company match because that's free money. And then after that's done, we're going to eliminate all of our debt except the mortgage. And then once that's done, we move up and we save at least three months of living expenses. You may, especially the pandemic has kind of shown a lot of people, you may want to shoot for more than three months, maybe six months, maybe a year, because a lot of things are out of our control. And I think COVID kind of showed us that, you know, we can control a lot of things, but there's a lot that we can't. Then we invest 15% of our salary for retirement. 
Then we can work on paying off our mortgage. Then after the mortgage is done, you can invest 30% of your income. And then basically you can do whatever you want after that. Um, If you have no debt at all, you're investing, you'd be free to give away money. You can just enjoy and do what you want. So, you know, kind of a a quick way to to go over it, but basically just kind of a step-by-step process on what to do to win with the game of financial freedom. And these are things that anybody can do at any financial level. None of this is based on the salary you make, right? I mean, your family had a teacher's salary and you were able to do this. In my view, from what I read in your book, you are wealthy on a teacher's salary. And that's something that a lot of people don't believe is possible. So I love the fact that you have done that. So let me ask you what your definition of a wealthy life is. Sure. And this is one where it's so subjective. And that's where you said, yes, I am wealthy. But this is where you have to look. Some people say, oh, wealthy is driving a Mercedes and having a 5,000 square foot home. To me, wealthy means being able to do what you've been called to do, no matter the cost or how much you can make by doing it. So before I was a special education teacher, I felt called to do that. My students had IQs under 20. So tube feeding, wheelchairs, None of them spoke. So I felt though, you know what? God gave me this gift at this point in my life to do that. So I did that for eight years. Also had a gift to help people manage their money better. So I wrote some books to try to do that as well. And then recently I've just transitioned now that I'm actually with a financial wellness company. So I go out and I do presentations, write content to show people, you know what? If this former school teacher can do it, you can do it too. But that's the thing. At first, I wasn't making a lot of money. And right now, still middle class. It's not my wife, Tracy. She went back. She's a teacher now. So still not, we're not rolling, making millions of dollars. But, you know, to me, we're able, we have the freedom to be able to do those things that we have felt that we are called to do. And that a lot of times can help you so much say no, because you're working for a bigger purpose. And we know it. You never see a hearse behind a funeral car, right? Because you can't take it with you. We've, a lot of us have heard that saying, but it's so true. But it's about what you're doing here and now. And like I said, I do feel like spiritually and whether you're a Christian or not, I, I am and I feel God gave me the power to teach. That is kind of one of those gifts that he has given me. So now I'm doing it to teach people about money. But I feel passionate every day when I get up to be able to do that. And I think for many people, and we talked about seven out of 10 don't like their jobs. Unfortunately, I think many people are dissatisfied in some area of life, whether it's in their marriage, with their kids, at their jobs, whatever it may be. So they buy stuff to mask that unhappiness. And it works for a little bit. And then that new car smell goes away. The feeling of wearing a new outfit goes away and bam, you have to buy something else to get that feeling again. And then bam, you buy something else. And then it's just this vicious cycle. So, you know, to me, that is kind of the definition of being wealthy is that when I'm able to do every day what I feel I've been called to do, I don't necessarily need those materialistic things to give me that sense of happiness because I'm doing it every day. And so I'm pretty sure that I know the answer to this question just based on what you've just said. But what is the number one obstacle that is preventing us from living a wealthy life in your definition? I think not knowing your why, not having that sense of purpose of, okay, what unique gifts have I been given that I'm able to use 
to not only, you know, benefit myself, but also help others. And I think that's kind of for me what I've learned and what I guess trying to instill in my daughters too. It's like when you're giving of yourself, there's really no price that you can put on that. And that's just where I, for me, I get that sense of fulfillment. So I think that to me is just the number one thing is if we don't know our why, why are we doing this? Then it's very easy just to kind of go through life and go through the motions. And that's very interesting because I was kind of thinking that you were going to say debt, but in a way, they're kind of one and the same, right? Because if you don't know your why, you're never going to get out of debt because you really don't have a strong enough purpose for doing that. Yes, for sure. But, you know, I kind of try to take it even back a step that the underlying cause of most people getting in debt is they don't know their why. Yeah, it's such a wild thing how that kind of weaves its way into so much of our life. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of people that struggle with getting out of debt. They want to get out of debt. They may not be sure how. They feel hopeless about it. A lot of different things come into play. Certainly the why comes into play. But one of the most motivational parts of my journey towards debt freedom was having a date that I knew if I just followed this plan, I was going to be debt-free, and that was so powerful for me. And you talk about a debt freedom date in your book. So can you explain how people can calculate their own debt freedom date? Sure. I use a simplistic way, and I don't include the interest in it, but I have found that a lot of people, when they're fired up about getting out of debt, that they'll actually start paying a little bit more on it. So that's kind of why I didn't calculate interest. So it's a very simplistic formula, but basically you just add up all your debts, how much debt you owe, divide it by how much you're paying each month on that debt. And then that's your debt freedom date. So for instance, let's just say you had three credit cards and they totaled a thousand dollars. We'll just make the numbers easy. And let's just say on those three credit cards, you're paying a hundred dollars a month total on those three. You just take that thousand, divide it by that 100, 10 months later, that would be your debt freedom date. So once again, a simplistic and I don't calculate the interest, but I think for me, a lot of people, once they see that, they actually speed up a little bit. It's almost like running a race and you kind of see that finish line at the end, you, you kick it in a little bit. It's similar to that because, you know, we'll go back to it. You know, why are people in trouble financially? They don't know their why. Most people are in trouble financially because of behavior. of money issues are behavioral based. So doing the debt freedom date, you see it. So it encourages you and it kind of gives you that boost. And that's why I think it's so powerful. Yeah. And once you get excited about it, you're right. There's for me, there was no stopping me. I was looking for extra money everywhere. The snowflakes, just anything that I could throw at that debt to get it out of the way faster. It almost became a game and it was actually fun for me. And I hope it's that way for other people because that really keeps the motivation going. So in talking about going faster on your debt payoff, your book actually outlines eight ways to speed up what you call your debt freedom march. So Mm -hmm. give us a couple of those. Sure. And one's big right now, especially with the pandemic, is reduce interest rates. So look at credit cards. And once again, with the debt freedom date, I didn't calculate interest, but that will help so much. If you can transfer a card that you're paying 18, 24% on to a 0% for a while, that's going to help you apply more to that principle of that debt and not the interest. So reduce interest rates on any of your debts. Better budgeting. That's probably the biggest one. I mean, you can go out and, you know, another one is get another job or get a raise. Those are things, though, that are somewhat dependent on someone else. Better budgeting you can do right now. Go ahead right now, you know, especially after the holidays. Now may be a good time. Track your spending. And this is what helped my wife and myself so much when we first got married is, 
And this was before smartphones. Life did exist before we had a smartphone. We walked around with a piece of paper and a pencil and we wrote down everything we bought for a month. Then we were able to analyze our spending. And a lot of people have no idea those five, $10 things just go out so fast. So you can find money through better budgeting and see, hey, you know what? We went out to Starbucks five times this month. Well, we don't have to do that. And then you can put more money back into your paycheck. And then another one too, and hopefully a lot of people get it, but a tax refund. Let's just say you get a tax refund this year. Don't go out and blow it on vacation. And there's some people actually, I actually just talked to someone that their Christmas money, they're depending on their tax refund to cover their Christmas. It's like, well, I hope you get a tax refund because I mean, to me, use that money effectively to get out of debt. So those are just some quick ways that you can speed up that process. So those are some things we can do. Now let's talk about some things to avoid. Because in the book, you talk about three things to avoid in order to position yourself to win with money. So what are those? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing, and we're going to go back to position, is just go ahead and make sure that you know what you're working towards. That, to me, is such an important factor. That helps you win with money and just eliminates some of those unnecessary expenses that you're going to have. So going back, and I'm big on behavior finance, having that why in place, but also the debt, especially that high interest debt. Do not like, and I know some people, if you're in desperate situations, those payday lenders, those types of high interest debts, stay away from that at all costs. Just do whatever you can because you're paying so much interest on that. So just to me, avoid debt as much as possible so that you can win with money because you're paying interest to someone else instead of earning it. I mean, that's a quick way to lose with your hard earned money. Absolutely. And one of the most important things I think that I've learned over the last several years learning about personal finance is really about how millionaires think about money and what characteristics they have. Because there were days when I felt like, you know, you feel sorry for yourself because you think, well, if I was a millionaire, I could do this and that and, you know, Mm -hmm. but I can't because I have no money. But (laughs) the people who really make money and keep it have certain characteristics that are pretty surprising. Can you share some of those? Sure. And it is interesting because you do sometimes look at millionaires and you look at their characteristics and it's like, okay, why do they live frugally still? Why do they drive a used car instead of buying brand new? But the reason they're millionaires is because those are the actions they took. It's very similar to going to a gym. You look at a personal trainer and you're like, gosh, why does that guy work out so much? He looks so good. Why does he eat so well? Well, the reason he looks the way he does is because of his actions. And it's the same thing with millionaires. So the actions that led them to have the money, they continue to follow them. So living frugally, many millionaires continue to live frugally. They drive a used car. Many will buy not a brand new car because you're going to get nailed with that depreciation, especially in that first year. So they buy a used car and let someone else hit that depreciation factor. Once again, they buy a car instead of leasing it. That way they have some ownership in it. And another one too, for many, and this, a lot of us can use this one, is they live in a house 
that is below their means. And I mean, Warren Buffett's a, an example. I know that he still lives, they send the same house that he bought years ago in Nebraska. And that may be extreme because he does, obviously, he's a multi-billionaire. But I think we can learn some lessons, especially with the house, I think, because that's most of our, many people, that's their biggest expense in life is that house. So if you live below your means when it comes to your house, then it frees up so much more money that then you're able to invest in. Then you're able to do those things to build more wealth. And I think a lot of people will say, oh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, there is some truth to that because rich people continue to do the same actions that made them money in the first place. Whereas on the other hand, broke people continue to do the same things that made them broke. So, you know, it's one of those that I think it just, it's, it goes back to behavior and a little behavioral finance, but it's so true that we can learn a lot from millionaires. And there's a great, one of my favorite books is The Millionaire Next Door. It just kind of dispelled a lot of these myths of what we think. Oh gosh, a millionaire is going to drive this and a millionaire is going to do that. But it was a huge study of actually how millionaires behave. And it was very eye-opening. Definitely. And that's a really great book. And I recommend everybody read that along with yours because Can I Borrow $400? Your book has so much great information and some great stories and just really inspirational words that everybody can use. So, Danny, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and sharing the book. First of all, tell us how people can get the book. And then about the um, mentoring services, you said you're working for a financial wellness company now. So, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. So to my books, easy enough, go on amazon.com. It's actually, um, I've written five books. So this is the latest one. And also my website, one of my books is called The Wealthy Teacher, Lessons for Prospering on School Teacher Salary. So the website is a wealthyteacher.weebly, so W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. Or if you probably just do a Google search, The Wealthy Teacher, my website will come up and all sorts of stuff, uh, interviews and everything about me will be on that. Uh, so yes, with the financial wellness company. So this is kind of one of those things that just... Uh, I feel like if you're a good steward with money, sometimes things just happen. And this thing, it came out of the blue for me. I was middle of teaching last school year, doing fine, content. And then someone called me and said, hey, we have this financial wellness company that we're kind of starting off and we'd like you to do some things for us. So started to do some presentations and writing some content. And then just over the course of of the year, the company started growing and then offered me a full-time job towards the end of September of this year of 2020. So my last day in the classroom was the day before Halloween. And I started with Mentoro November 2nd, I guess it was, and just loving it. We focus on just financial wellness. So we work with companies, we work with individuals, but especially right now, a lot of people with the pandemic, pre-pandemic they were, but especially now with the pandemic still going on, hopefully ending soon, but just struggling with their money. So we just try to help people and meet them where they are. And just no matter what area of their personal finance lives that they need help in, we provide that assistance to help them with that. And once again, my goal is I I don't want you to be one of the 70% that don't like going to work. And I try to envision if most of us were passionate about our jobs, if we enjoyed what we were doing, just think how great our country would be. If we were all working towards something that we felt, hey, this means something to me and I have a purpose for this. So that's my goal. So if we're able to help people handle their money better, then if you do happen to be someone that doesn't like your job, well, if you're handling your finances better, guess what? Because I've done it. You can take a, a job that pays less 
but you're more passionate about. So, and I've been there and I've done that and it does, it makes such a world of difference. So it's just a, a great company. I love what I do just to go out and give people hope, especially right now. Absolutely. Such an important thing. Thanks for being out there. And thanks for all that you do. You've written some great books. And of course, the latest one, Can I Borrow $400? So everybody go to wealthyteacher.weebly.com and learn more about Danny. Pick up a copy of the book. Danny, thanks again so much for your time being here today. Thank you so much, Bobby, for having me on. I enjoyed it. A great big sensible thank you to Danny Kofke, author of Can I Borrow $400? Visit his website, wealthyteacher.weebly.com, to get the book and learn how to save $30,000 this year. I love how Danny focuses so much on the why, because I believe it's the biggest motivator to keep you focused on reaching your goals. A while back, I wrote a blog post called Six Steps to Slay Your Debt, and the first step was to stop adding new debt. But now I realize there are actually seven steps to slay your debt, and the first is to find your why. Because until you know why you want to get out of debt or reach any other goal, it's going to be really hard to stay on track and do what you need to do. Why should you? Instant gratification is great. And if you're not focused on what you really want and how much it means to you, instant gratification will always win. So really think about your why. Articulate it. Verbalize it. Let people know. This keeps it top of mind and gives you some accountability. The other thing Danny talked about that I want to follow up on is how much focus we tend to put on who's leading our country and how it impacts our lives. The truth is, no matter who's running things or what programs are put in place, we still have control over our lives and our decisions. Do some government programs make life harder or easier for a time? Sure. But should we depend on them for our survival or blame them for our demise? No. We have no control over what the government does or doesn't provide and how long it stands before the rules change. But we do have control over how we manage our money day to day to make sure we can provide for ourselves. It's kind of like living paycheck to paycheck. When we do that, we're depending on someone else to keep things steady and status quo in our lives. We have no flexibility because the moment our paycheck is taken away, our stream of money is gone and our survival is in jeopardy. It's a stressful, scary, and unnecessary way to live. There are certain things we can control and certain things we can't. If we can separate them and really understand the difference, I believe it can make a huge impact on our lives. I talked about the serenity prayer several months ago, but I want to cover it again because I think it's really important. First, listen to the prayer. God, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. What are some things we cannot change? We cannot change the amount of the stimulus checks our government decided to give us. We cannot change how much unemployment is being provided, or the fact that some who should be getting it are falling through the cracks. We have to accept it and move on to providing for ourselves. Now, what are some things we can change? Our spending. Not only discretionary expenses, but financial obligations. Look at your bills. You probably don't want to shut off your electricity, but if times are tight, you could get rid of your Amazon Prime membership. Question everything. 
We can also change our income by using the time we're out of work to search for a new job, a better opportunity, and some part-time work along the way to keep the lights on. If you've been hit with a financial hardship, you can yell, scream, cry, and talk about how unfair it is, but it's not going to change anything. So once you've given yourself some time to express your emotions, take a deep breath and say this prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Think about what you can change and have the courage to do it. Let go of the things you cannot change. It's a waste of time. And thank your lucky stars that you had the wisdom to know the difference. The ideas I mentioned are just a starting ground. Take some time and think about it. Brainstorm by yourself and with other people. It's always amazing to me what can come from a brainstorming session. But make sure you go beyond the brainstorm. The best ideas with no follow-up mean nothing. And it's easy to forget great ideas that get thrown around if you don't write them down. So I've created a guide for you to go through this process. It's called A Budgeter's Guide to Serenity. It breaks down the serenity prayer, what each piece means, and gives you space to put your thoughts and ideas on paper. This is the perfect starting ground to creating a plan that can help you find serenity. So get this guide and find your serenity. It's available on the resources page of my website at sensiblechat.com. If you need some help, reach out to me and let's work together. All my contact info is available at sensiblechat.com. If you want to keep up on my budgeting journey this year, follow my blog post series, The Diary of a Budgeter. You can get it on my website or my social media channels, MeWe, Parlor, and LinkedIn. I just started a budgeting group on MeWe as well. So connect with me there. Share your success stories, new tips and tricks, as well as what you're struggling with. And let's help each other. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. And until next time, remember, do the math, live the life. That does it for this episode of Sensible Chat. Thanks for joining us. You'll find all the links and resources mentioned in the show notes at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. Connect with us on LinkedIn and MeWe and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. To schedule a free budget consultation, go to sensiblechat.com and click on the book a free call button in the upper right hand corner. Have a question or success story? How about a great budgeting idea? Visit sensiblechat.com for all the contact information. That's sensible with a C.